0: Do you ever look at our country and our world and and wonder why are things deteriorating in the way that they are? Why why are things changing so so fast? Why are things happening as they are? Well, certainly there are other cultures that have been worse and are worse maybe than our own culture now but the, the rapid decline of morality in our land is staggering our, our news is filled with horror stories of the ways that people hurt one another there are constant uh, reports of, of war and murder and corruption and tragedy upon tragedy People abduct and abuse children. The elderly are assaulted and preyed upon by swindlers and thieves. God's design for the family is eroding at an alarming rate in our culture. Today, when you you talk about marriage, it's it's either mocked or avoided or redefined. In the 1940s, 16.5% of marriages ended in divorce. 16.5%. Today, that number is somewhere between 40 and 50%. In the past 50 years, the number of children in the United States who live in a single family home has, has doubled. One third of American children are being raised without a father. And that number jumps to 54% for African-American children. On average, 3,150 babies are aborted each year. That's 131 every hour. It's two every minute. And those numbers do not include California, Delaware, Maryland, and New Hampshire, who would not report their numbers. The arts, which both reflect and shape culture, are filled with the glorification of things that God says are sinful and destructive. It's nearly impossible to to turn on the the television without seeing a sitcom or a commercial that that normalizes and, and glorifies fornication and adultery and homosexuality. Our culture is truly wasting away. But why? Is it it our economic instability? Is it our educational deficiencies or corrupt uh, political philosophies? Why are things as they are and seemingly getting worse? How would God answer that question? Well, I believe that He does, and I believe He does in His Word. And I'm afraid that His explanation is... It's terrifying. This morning, we're going to talk about the scariest thing that God can say to a people. It's found in the book of Romans, chapter 1. I'm going to ask you to turn with me there to Romans, chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 18 down through 32. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can grab one in front of you there in the pew. It'll be helpful. We're, like, literally just going to go walk through what the Bible says. It's on page 939. You're looking for it. As you're turning there, let's remember that, that this, this letter that we're, we're studying here over the next year was written to, to a, a church who is in a city that is a lot like ours. Rome was the, the center of world power in the first century. It was a city where wealth and, and power and technological advancement thrived. But while its culture would have been called by many progressive, it was morally corrupted. It was a place of perversion and violence and oppression. It was a spiritually dark place that that hated the God of the Bible and mocked Him openly. But in the midst of that dark place, God gave the good news of His grace in His Son, Jesus Christ, and people believed the gospel about God's Son and a church was born, and this letter was written to that congregation to strengthen them in the gospel. To remind them that it is the gospel that, that saves them from sin and then transforms them into godly people and then empowers them to proclaim that same gospel in the city that God had, had placed them. And last week we studied, uh, uh, well, all the way up through verse 17, and in verses 16 and 17 we, we saw a couple of verses that kind of act as, as the theme verse for, for the entire book. So let's look at those again. Verse 16, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, meaning in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That, in a nutshell, is is the book of Romans. That that in the gospel God has revealed his righteousness, his character that, that in turn exposes our unrighteousness. And that in that gospel message he tells us that there is a provision for an alien righteousness, a righteousness that's not ours, that's outside of us, that is given to us in Christ through faith alone. And that now the Holy Spirit of God who who dwells in God's people helps us to live out a practical righteousness both in the church and through the church so that the nations might know that God is the God who should be worshipped. That's kind of what the the book of Romans is all about. But the, the beauty of God's provision of righteousness for us cannot be rightly delighted in until we know what it is that, it, that we're being saved from. and As we're going to see this morning, there is, there is a tidal wave of God's wrath that is going across history, being poured out on those who reject Him. We're going to see that in Romans chapter 1. Follow along with me, starting in verse 18. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. To a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They're gossips and slanderers and haters of God. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I'll go ahead and warn you that this morning, it's, it's a weighty text that we're looking at. It's not a popular text. It's not politically correct even a little bit. It is a weighty word this morning. And it begins kind of your, your, your second major section in the book of Romans. So the first one is about what the gospel is and who it's written to. And then this, this second major section of Romans where God shows that all people are rebels against him. In chapter 1, we're going to see God speaking specifically about Gentiles. Those are people who do not have special revelation from God as in his word. And then in chapter 2, which we'll look at next week, we're going to see him look at at the rebellion and the condemnation of of the Jews. Those who do have special revelation through the law and the prophets. Which builds all the way up to chapter 3, verse 9, where we see that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through 320, this, this section, if you want to title it in one word, you might call it condemnation. It is God's explanation of the condemnation of rebels against him. And as, as we hear this sermon in next week's sermon and seek to apply it to our own context, we, we need, to keep, need to keep in mind that, that our culture is is kind of a mixed bag between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Because we have both general and special revelation, though though, less people, I would say, pay attention to the special revelation in our day, in the scriptures, and and, and God himself, and Christ himself. Um, so we're, we're kind of a mixed bag. So I was saying to Shai that that the chapter 1 this morning is one that, if I had to pick a sermon for the Northeast, that it would be chapter 1. It's more feels more, more godless in one sense. Whereas chapter 2 for next week, if I'm going to preach one, I'm going to do that in the Bible Belt where everybody thinks they know God. Okay, so, but, but there's a mixed bag and we're right on the Mason-Dixon line so both are good for us. All right? Now, another thing to keep in mind, just, just for the way my language will go this morning, when I say we and us, there's going to be times that I'm going to be speaking about our culture as a whole and then whenever I'm speaking specifically about the church, those who are called out from God's wrath, I'll make that clear and say I'm speaking about the church. Just so we're not confused as to, as to who I'm, I'm speaking to and about. Okay. Now, as we turn to our text, we are going to see that the overarching message of this chapter is that the Gentiles of the world are condemned before God in their unrighteousness. And in this condemnation, God says one of the scariest things that he can say to a people or to a nation. He tells us that if you want life without me, you can have it. Go ahead. Thy will be done. And that is, as we will see, the scariest thing that God can say to a people. Let's start with the theme verse for this section, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That first word is really important there, the word for. So if you have an NIV, it it, it assumes it. Um, Many other translations will will make it explicit. I think it's an important word there, for. It, It shows a connection in verse 18 to what came before it in 16 and 17 that describes the good news of the gospel. And the connection is important because God's wrath against sinners, chapters 1 through 3, is it serves as the black velvet on which the diamond of the gospel lays. And that it's when we understand the condemnation and the context in which we live that then good news is really good news because we see what it is that God is saving us from and delivering us us out of. He mentions here God's wrath God's wrath is its the expression of his, his personal just anger against sin. That because God is good and holy, he does not wink at sin. He doesn't just give you a attaboy and, hey, don't worry, we'll get her better next time. And, you know, have some self-esteem and everything's okay. And, like, that's, that's not what God says at all. Because God is good and because God is holy... He is a God of wrath. God hates sin. He hates it. And he pours out his wrath on sinners. Now usually when we think about God's wrath, we think of it in in the final, ultimate sense. Kind of that that future day of wrath and judgment. Which is true. Because there there is a day of wrath that is, is coming. When God will fully and finally and once and for all deal with evil in the most horrific way imaginable there will be a lake of fire that will burn forever and forever and that day is coming where god will execute his judgment on the devil and the demons and all those who have chosen to forsake christ and follow after their way of rebellion Romans 2.5, which we'll read next week, you can look at it there, it actually speaks of this. It says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. You get that picture? That our rebellions against God, if not covered by the blood of Christ, what is happening there, not forgotten, God's not just a good old boy who says, hey, don't worry about it, but rather they are storing up. Revelation chapter 20 speaks about books being opened, and in those books are all the accounts of the wrath that is being stored up because of our rebellions. And there is a day coming, fully and finally, when God will judge the world, and none will escape unless they are in Christ. But that day of wrath is not the wrath that God's speaking about here in our text. In verse 118, in this verse, God says that there's an expression of his wrath that is currently being revealed from heaven. There's a form of judgment that's coming upon peoples and cultures even today. God says his wrath is revealed, and that's in the present tense. It's an ongoing form of judgment. Just as rain falls from heaven continually, Well, so God's wrath is falling continually being revealed, it's being poured out, it's being constantly displayed. Now why would a good, loving God do that? Well, because He's good. God, God judges sin because He's good. And because we are not. Verse 18 tells us that because of people's ungodliness and unrighteousness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, so ungodliness is a, it's a disposition of our lives that is unlike God. That God is good, he is perfect, he is holy. It's a disposition of our lives that is, that is against him and that rejects him. That doesn't love him, that doesn't worship him, that doesn't obey him. That it's, There's an ungodly disposition of our lives where we're not seeking to honor him. And then unrighteousness is, is the working out of that. It's the display of godlessness through wicked actions, oftentimes against other people. God says that Gentile nations are under his wrath because we have suppressed his truth in unrighteousness. Now, How do we, how do, we, do, how do, we do that? How, how have we suppressed the truth in unrighteousness? Well, in 19 through 24, I want you to watch the flow. And what you're going to see is you're going to see that, that there's a revelation from God that's going to happen. And then there's a, there's a stiff arm. There's a rejection of God. And then there's a replacement of God. Let's look first at this in 19 through 20 where we see that God has revealed himself in creation. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Verse 24, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. So the invisible is is visible. Where? Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God says that He has made Himself known plainly to us. How? In creation, yeah. In the things that have been made. This is what we might call general revelation or common grace. There's, there's, a, revel, there's a level of revelation that, that, that God has made available for everybody. Even the people who have never heard, which we'll talk more about next week. What happens to the person who's never heard? We'll talk about them more next week. But we, we see here that regardless of where you are born, that God has given evidence of himself in creation. David speaks about this revelation in in Psalm 19 where he says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night he reveals knowledge. There are no words, but you can see it. It's there. It cries out. It screams, I am God. And I am here his faithfulness, it, it says there in the text that, that his invisible attributes are made, are made visible through things that are made. So how does that happen? Well, his, his faithfulness, it's told in every sunrise. His creativity and beauty, is the, he's an artist and he shows it in every sunset. His, his benevolence is, is evidenced in every rain shower, in every bit of fruit that comes up from the ground for us to eat. His sovereignty is seen in the changing of seasons. His power is put on display in the in the mountaintops with the, 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 the snow-capped peaks and the roaring rivers and the, the currents of the ocean. His power is seen there. His wisdom is seen in, in microscopic DNA or, or the telescopic Milky Way. It's, it's everywhere. His goodness is given in food and in the gifts of laughter and love. And Just as a symphony doesn't compose and play itself, so it is clear that our world's order and design has a creator. That there is a grand composer who is worthy of everyone's worship. And that's what's supposed to happen, just like at the end of a symphony where everybody stands up and applauds, and yes, that's what all of creation should do. When we, when we look and see the way he has weaved everything together, To say, look at what I've done. That should be the response. It should be one of worship and says, I don't know who you are, but send a word to me. Show me something. Get me news about how I can know you. God says he has made his presence known and there's no excuse in not recognizing that we have a creator to whom we should honor and give thanks. And it's important to recognize that this this general revelation isn't enough to save someone, to teach them about Christ, but it is enough to awaken them to the reality that they have a maker to whom they should owe their lives. And it's also enough to condemn them when they do not respond in such a way. And instead of responding rightly to the revelation of God, our culture and many other cultures have rejected Him. So God has revealed Himself, but we have foolishly rejected Him. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. God says, they knew me, and I know they knew me because I made myself known to them. I mean, it's everywhere. They can't can't miss it. And did did you notice the two things that headline their rejection? There's two glaring absences of their lives. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. The two most basic responses of the creation to its creator should be reverence and thankfulness. Because James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. And what we should do is respond with worship. But what we do do is respond with rejection. They don't honor Him. Their affections were not set on pleasing him or being pleased in him. Do not give him glory for their achievements, let alone their existence. Got no shout outs when they won awards or acknowledgments for his worthiness to receive glory for the countless measures of mercy they received. And neither do they thank him. David said just a moment ago in his prayer that self worship is accompanied by thanklessness and a critical spirit and a grumbling heart. That is our world. That is, that would be us apart from God. They slurp down drinks and scarf down food and suck in air day after day, year after year, but do it thanklessly, presuming upon the mercy that keeps on coming. And rather than realizing that everything that we have is a gracious gift from God, make light of him, make much of ourselves. I remember I did this in college. It's my freshman year. One of the guys from our dorm, we, we, went out, we went out to eat somewhere. and his name was Chang, and he, uh, he, right before he ate, he bowed his head and, and prayed. And I incited mocking against him. And everybody else at the table kind of joined in. I was, I was blind. He was thanking his maker for the food that we were all partaking of. But I was, I was blind. Thankless. And the reason this happens, as we saw in verse 18, is that by unrighteousness they suppress the truth. To suppress the truth means to, to push away something or to restrain someone or something. So do you remember in, in the book of Acts when Stephen, right before he is stoned to death, he's, he's preaching before all of the religious leaders talking about how Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament and they killed him just like they killed all of the rest of the prophets. And you remember what the response was to Stephen? Stephen. Verse 57 and 58, they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. We don't want to hear about God. Shut your mouth, don't say his name. We don't want to hear about Jesus, we don't hear about the gospel. We don't want it in our schools. We don't want it in our workplaces. We don't want it in our neighborhoods. You're going to get kicked out of PTA. You can't even say, No, don't say his name. We don't want to hear it. Suppressing the truth. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching a panel on CNN that was discussing whether or not it should be mandated for female patients to see a sonogram before they have an abortion. And as we watched the discussion unfold, it was was amazing, because two of the people on the panel, they they were just obviously saying no, and they were protesting this idea because they said it would be cruel to force a mother to see that kind of thing and put added pressure on her. So in other words, we don't want to see truth. We don't want to see a heartbeat before we stop making it beat. We don't want to see murder. We don't want to see that there's blood on our hands. We want it to be nice and clean, a nice little procedure. If you've ever been in an abortion clinic, you walk in, there's colorful uh, posters everywhere, and there's fun little, you know, romantic comedies on, and it's just like, it's just it's just, just deception because you don't want to see truth about what's happening. And this is from a a man who before I was a Christian had an abortion. So I I don't say that as someone who, who just looks down my nose at people. God saves all kinds of sinners, even murderers. But there's a holocaust in our land We don't want to acknowledge it. And God says, you can suppress it all day, but it's there. It's truth. And there's a day coming, an ultimate day, and there's a day now when my wrath is being revealed upon your nation for it. The Lord says, when a people reject him and suppress his truth, they become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Our culture says it's progressive to move past God and it's enlightenment to reject his revelation. But God says, when you shut off the light of my revelation, all you get is darkness. That's all you get. When you push away the evidences of his existence, our minds become useless or futile because they can no longer discern reality. One of the great gifts of common grace is to be able to to see things rightly. But in God's wrath, he's removed that from these Gentiles. This foolishness and darkness is clearly seen in what happens after we reject God's revelation. In verses 22 and 23, we see that we have replaced God with idols. God has revealed himself, we have rejected him, and now we have replaced him. Verse 22 and 23 Claiming to be wise they became fools And exchanged The glory of the immortal God For images Resembling mortal man and birds and animals And creeping things The rejection of God is always Followed by the replacement of God We may not want to worship the God of the Bible But the reality is we are going To worship something We were created to worship Verse 23 says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. They traded the Lord in for idols. They swapped the Savior for statues. Why? Because if we don't worship God, we're going to find something else to worship. It's just going to happen. And and in many cultures, there are like literal idols in the form of people or animals. So we we heard that text read this morning out of Isaiah chapter 44. Where somebody cuts down a tree, uses part for firewood, part to cook a dinner, and the other part to make a god. It's very common in, in India and in the East and many tribal peoples both in Africa and in South America. And when a lot of us think about that kind of idolatry, we're kind of like, whew, well, at least I don't do that. And we kind of we excuse ourselves from the conversation. We think that's a little, little silly. I'm, I'm not going to fall into those kinds of, of things we should be very slow to assume that we don't have our own cultural idols as Tim Keller says we we have our replacement gods and our text says that we have exchanged God for other things like like our jobs and our careers where in there we find our identity or in our, our own image because we want people to accept us or in some kind of steamy romance because we deep down we want to be des- desired and want, want to be known that we're desired. Or this, this personal a- achievement where we kind of get some glory. Or material possessions where we find security or physical health or beauty. And a lot of those things are provisions for, that God has given us, but the Lord created us to be under his care. Where there we find identity and intimacy and acceptance and security in Him for His glory, and then we can rightly use other things. But instead, we've rejected Him and given ourselves over to be ruled by created things that we might receive glory. In verse 25, we're told that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, literally, the lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed for every man. There is a lie that has been hissing in the ears of God's people ever since the Garden of Eden. That true freedom comes when God doesn't rule over you. That God's ways are kind of a, it's a bogus idea. It's all a sham. It's just a pyramid scheme. Don't do it. Rather, you want life. What you need to do is you need to cast off these shackles Psalm 2 and you need to go do whatever you want to do and find something else to give you life because that's where control is. And sometimes we take good things and worship them. We turn good things into little gods. For instance, physical health and beauty. Those aren't bad things. It's a good thing. Okay? Hit the gym. Eat right. You know, fine. Take a shower. Thank you. Those are good things to do. Right? But In our culture, they are an idol of choice. Rather than ensuring our our souls are healthy and our affections are strong for God, we get consumed with what we eat and what we wear and how we look. An idol of our image. And even good things make lousy gods. They let us down. Even if you got the whole world, it would seem. Listen to this from from Tom Brady, who, David Verhey, Tom Brady's an NFL quarterback, plays for the New England Patriots. He's one of the best quarterbacks in NFL history, okay? He, a couple years ago, did a 60 Minutes interview, and at the end of the interview, they were talking about what do you want to achieve next, and and he said this. He says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings And still think there's something greater out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. You reached your goal, you got your dream, you got your life. Married to a supermodel. But me, I think, God, there's, there's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't it. This can't be what all it's cracked up to be. And the interviewer then asked him, then what's the answer? And he said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. That guy has everything. Every idol that every man could ever want. but It's empty. Because idols are always lousy gods. They always leave you empty. Because there's only one God who satisfies the soul. It's the one true God. Idols are all insufficient, all incompetent, all impotent, who can't save us, or rather they deceive us and enslave us to a life of continual disappointment and despair and ultimately death. And this is what people who trade God for idols don't understand. They think that there's freedom there. But there's not, because worship and service are always bound together. Worship and service are always bound together. That's Keller again. Who or what you worship is who or what you will serve. So if, if money's your God, you will serve money. If sex is your God, you will serve sex. Those are fine things in and of themselves in the right context with how God designed them to be. Great blessings. But when they become lousy, lousy idols... And we will seek to serve them rather than serving the loving, faithful, all-powerful, grace-giving, mercy-extending, benevolent creator. But rather we suppress the truth. And this is where we hear God say the scariest thing that He can say to a people. That when they suppress His truth in their unrighteousness and reject His revelation and exchange His immortal glory for idols... When they harden their hearts, there comes a time when God says, Thy will be done. I'm going to remove my protecting hand, and I'm going to give you what you want. You don't want me? Fine. I'm going to step back, and I'm going to let you have what you want. Verse 23, or 24 through 32, we see the reprobation from God. The reprobation from God. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28. And since they did not fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. God says the scariest thing that He can say to anybody You want idols? Have your idols. You want to use your body for perverse things? Indulge your perversions. You want to fulfill your passions against my design? Go ahead. You want to believe lies? Believe lies. Thy will be done. You see, one of the things that we don't understand very often is that the the only thing that keeps us, any of us, from being as bad as we could be is God's preserving, restraining grace. That's the only reason that you're not as bad as you, as you could be. And if, if for a second you think, well, actually, no, I'm, I'm a pretty good person, that, just hear this, please, that is pride that hinders you from understanding grace. The only reason any of us are not Hitler is because God kept us from being such. Do you remember in Genesis when, when Abraham lies about Sarah being his wife and Abimelech takes her as his wife and then God confronts Abimelech about his sin? Do you, do you remember that, 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 that scene? Listen to this, Genesis 20, verse 6. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he, Abraham, not say to me, she, Sarah, is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. And then this, you know, the king says this to God. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God says, listen, you ain't that great, buddy. You're a pervert, and the only reason you didn't work out your perversion is because I held back your hand. God's restraining grace guarded him. But there does come a time, however, when a person... Where people persist in hardening their hearts against God in such a way where He says, Fine, thy will be done. And he gives over to sin and the enslaving sorrows that follow. And that's what we see in our text. And that is what I believe is happening in our country. God is giving the Gentile nations over to what we want. Verse 24. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God says, you want to mock celibacy before marriage? Mock it. Go, Go ahead and share your body with a new partner every year or every month or every week or every night. Go ahead. See what is there. You want to you mock the sacred institution of marriage? You want to settle for swapping partners rather than, than having a deep intimacy and a deep love? You want that? Fine. You want to indulge in pornography? Fine. Then fill your hearts and your mind with lies about sex and love and acceptance. You want the scars? You want the haunting memories? You want to be owned by something? Thy will be done. You can have, you can have fleeting pleasure, pleasures instead of my good treasures. Thy will be done. God gave them up. Verse 26, it says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women And we're consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. One of the ways that God judges a people is giving them over to dishonorable passions. This is one of the clear texts in the Bible that teaches about homosexuality. In light of the fact that it's a a popular discussion in our day, I want to highlight three things. About this, about this issue. Number one, we need to recognize from the text that homosexual activity, whether it's a fantasy in the mind or an indulging with the body, is a shameful sin that is a form of judgment from God. God has designed sexual relationships to be between one man and one woman in marriage which also means that all other sexual sins are condemned as well. So fornication, adultery, lusting after someone who isn't your spouse, pornography, whatever else might be done outside of marriage, is sin. I know that's not popular, and that may be hard for some of you to hear, but the Bible is very clear on this. And it's not just the Old Testament. Secondly, homosexuality is sinful even if a government approves of it. Homosexuality is sinful even if a government approves of it. It is not progress to legislate same-sex unions or marriage. It is a form of God's wrath on a culture. There are differences between genders, no matter what a school, bathroom, or any kind of study may say. God has made men and women distinctly different. And to deny this is to go against his design. Thirdly, Christians should love people who are given over to this sin. And when God saves someone out of it, we should extend the same exact, deep, patient, gracious love toward them that we would toward anyone else who's been saved from sin or that we would want anyone to extend toward us, who has been saved out of sin. And for those of you who are here today who love the Lord Jesus and still wrestle with same-sex attraction, I want you to know that God's grace is sufficient to help you. There's not one person in this room who doesn't struggle with, with different kinds of sins. We are, none of us are perfected yet. Positionally, yes, but practically, no. So I want to encourage you that there needs to be no extra shame for you. That on the cross, Jesus took all of your shame and all of your condemnation. And the church has done a bad job, oftentimes, of helping people who struggle with particular sins, this being one of them. And on behalf of the church, we are sorry. But we want you to know that this is a safe place to be a Christian. Because we are not perfect people. None of us. And all of us need His mercy. So I want to encourage you not to stay in the dark, but to confide with somebody who can help you pray and fight against sin. Because anything left in the dark, the devil uses. God is a gracious God. You are loved in Christ. That being said, I do want to make clear that I think the modern infatuation with this sin and the championing of it in our culture is a terrifying sign that God is giving us over to dishonorable and deeply destructive perversion. But we must remember that homosexuality isn't simply a sex problem or an identity issue. It is false worship, and it is self-love problem, just as all kinds of sexual sin are. And this is not popular, and some would say it's hate speech. And we would say that the reason that people respond that way is because of verse 28 and following. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. A debased mind means that their mind is drowsy or corrupted or failing to meet the test, it's not working correctly. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that they're not smart, there's plenty of people who reject Christianity and see things differently than we would are wicked smart, okay? They got PhDs and all the other Ds that there are. Like, he's got, got a, tons of them, okay? That's not what we're saying. But there's, there's a sense in which being able to perceive reality is a grace from God and that for some, God removes that and operate in darkness. And one of the judgments of God on a hardened culture is that he gives them over to believe lies, Listen to this from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10. For those who are perishing, they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That echoes Romans 1. God says you don't want to love truth you want to find your pleasure in unrighteousness? Then follow your lies. I will give, the, I will give you over to them. And the results of their af- affections for darkness and their appetites to love death, we see verse 29, they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice, full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness they are gossips and slanderers and haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Does that sound familiar? Companies spend millions of dollars on advertisements because they know that we have discontent hearts and covetous hearts that are not satisfied with simple things that God gives us, so we will spend money. I'm not saying all spending is bad, but there is a covetousness that characterizes a discontentment with God. We have entire TV shows and magazines and websites dedicated to slander and gossip. We live in an untrustworthy land where people deceive and lie and steal from each other. You, your word is not good enough anymore. You've got to have, I mean, y'all looking for a house. You've got 10,000 pages to fill out and just because somebody's going to try and do it wrong. We live in a lying culture. We're liars, deceivers, because we love lies. God says you love lies, you're going to live in that. Parents are betrayed as buffoons on TV, and God becomes punchlines on sitcoms and stand-ups. The heart of our culture is set against God. And in verse 32, he says, "Though." They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So the conscience, the natural conscience, before it's worn down and hardened and seared, he cries out, no, there's things that are right and there's things that are wrong. And they say, hey, listen, don't worry about it. Come along for the ride. We're progressing. We're moving onward. We don't need God. We don't need the Bible. We have ourselves. We're going to build a tower to heaven and make a name for ourselves. God is giving us over to our sin. That's what he does to Gentile nations. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, he describes it this way. He says to the lost, he says, enjoy forever the horrible freedom that they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. Freedom from God is enslavement to death-giving idols. Now, for some of us, this kind of text is really hard to hear. Like, we were kind of hoping for something a little more uplifting, a little more encouraging, But we live in a culture that makes fun of everything. And it is good for us to feel the weight of truth. To see things rightly. And I pray that I've been able to help us see that a little bit. I feel like the Lord helped me this week. Because it is once that we understand the great weight of our sin and the condemnation. That we deserve and that rests upon those who are outside of Christ. It's then and only then that the gospel makes sense. There's a tidal wave coming and we need somebody to get us out of here. The, the wrath is coming down and we need somebody to shield us. We need a savior. We need somebody to rescue us. We need somebody to get us out of here. That's what the whole Bible's about that God is sending a Savior, that He sent a Savior. He sent His Son, Christ, the one who, who stood there on the cross and took the judgment that we deserved, and took the condemnation that Gentiles and Jews and all people alike deserved upon the cross. There He received the wrath. That tidal wave fell upon Him so that for all those who by faith, and faith alone, because we've got nothing to bring, Regardless of how deep we've gone in any of this, it's all over. We are stained in and of ourselves. We can't clean it off. But Christ says, come to me, and I will cleanse you, and I will take off your ragged, decrepit, ripped up, destroyed robes of self, selfishness and sin, and I will give you, I will clothe you in pure white linen with the righteousness of me. Christ gives us what we cannot have in and of ourselves. The wrath of God is being revealed, but the righteousness of God is being revealed in Christ. And because of that, there is great hope. So in conclusion, I want to give us four things to ponder about. So be, be brief, but I want us to take these away. And the first is this, that we need to remember that the root of the world's problem is Spiritual. The root of the world's problem is spiritual. We live in Washington, D.C., and we've got this false idea that if we can just fix policies and get education right and change the economy and do all these kinds of things, that then things are going to get better. And listen, I'm hoping there's, I'm hoping that, that there's a common grace where we get to enjoy life here. I'm all for that. So thank you for those of you who try to... to uh, you, you work hard for the sake of our country. Thank you for that. But we have to remember as a church that the hope for the world is the gospel. It is the only thing that changes hearts. That's the only thing. You can't legislate change of heart. You can't do it. That's why Constantine's a bad idea. It's like a Christian nation. No, we want, we want to, that's not what we want to fight for. What we want to fight for is freedom to proclaim the gospel because that's what saves people. Let us not forget that that's the root of the problem in our world. The second thing, do not flirt with sin. Do not flirt with sin. The great lie of sin is that it, it only wants a little bit. Just a moment of your time, just this once You won't go very far. It'll just be a taste, just a touch, just one sip, just a moment at the chair, just lay down for a second. It's fine. It's a lie. It's a lie. And some of us in this room flirt with it. And some of us more than flirt with it. Some of us look for it and seek it. Even some of us who who know the living Lord Jesus, hear, please, the Scriptures say, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Because God gave those people over. That was a warning from Hebrews 3 to a church where He says, don't harden your heart against God's Word. Don't flirt with sin. It's deceptive. It's tricky. It hardens your heart against God. He says, don't do that. Flee. Flee. Whatever you've got to do, flee. And if you're thinking, well, I'm, I just feel enslaved right now. I believe in Christ, but I feel enslaved. Listen, the very fact that you are breathing and you're alive today is God's mercy. Romans 2, 4 says, do, not pres- do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So hear me, some of you, you, you say, I, I hate this sin, and I, I believe that you do, because I've been ensnared in things before, and I hate it, but you've got to do whatever you've got to do. You don't need a smartphone. You don't need to stay at that job. You don't need to keep being friends with a certain person. You don't need to l- keep living in the neighborhood that you're living in. If, it's a particular th- if there's stuff there that is leading you to the path of hell, no, please do not flirt with it. The worst thing God could say is, That will be done. Do not flirt with it. Please. Thirdly, we should tremble at God's wrath. It is good for us to read the Gospels and to read the book of Revelation and to hear Jesus' words and to see those end times and to see the fact that there is a weighty reality. That God hates sin and that he will pour out all of his mighty, eternal vengeance upon it. And that, that should make us tremble. It should humble us. And what we need to do is ask God to help us to tremble at it. Because that's not natural for us. What's natural is to make light of it or try and forget it or try and think of some happy thoughts, happy thoughts. No, what we need is to say, God, help me to feel that. This week, Shai and I were traveling, we, we went on a little trip down Atlanta, and when we were, I mean, I just, everywhere I was going, this was on my mind, and I would see people, and I would just well up with tears, and I'm just like, there's so many people. And there are people who are under God's wrath, pray for God to help us to see people, not according to the flesh, but, but according to, to spiritual realities, that people are going to hell. Like when you're driving, and You're stuck in that traffic. Pray that God would help you to see all those people as He sees them. And finally, number four: marvel in God's grace. I mean, it's amazing that He would love any of us. We did nothing. We did nothing except I don't want you say except I don't want you, and I don't want your truth and i don't want your love and i don't want your faithfulness and i don't care what you've done we've we've done nothing but push him away but for some reason there are some that he's called out if he's called you to himself marvel in that it's amazing delight in his love it's prideful to keep your eyes on yourself and to think oh yeah but i'm this or i'm that or i'm this or i'm that enjoy the gospel Enjoy Christ. You are free to be loved by God in Christ. Love that. Rejoice in that. And marvel in God's grace. And May God use that as fuel for us to tell people about this good news. The only good news will deliver from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you extend mercy. In the face of the scariest thing that you can say, which is thy will be done, that for some, God, you would, through the power of the gospel, say, my will be done. Come to me, and I will give you life. Oh God, please help us. Lord, if there be any in this room this morning who do not know you, God, let them not mock your word. or let them not suppress the truth. In unrighteousness, but God, help them to hear true things from this morning and use it to, to open their eyes to see the beauty of Christ and give them faith to respond, Lord. We pray that you would save souls today. And God, for those of us who are in Christ, God, help us to have compassionate hearts that see the lost as you do. God, give us tenderness towards those who struggle with things unlike us or like us. And Lord, help us to tremble at your wrath. And God, help us to marvel at your grace. Give that to us. Lord, it's not natural in us. Give it to us in abundance, we pray. Mark us as a people of your mercy. In the name of Jesus, amen.